struggled with this text actually for probably a couple of hours um, when I was just getting it. At first glance, I thought I was good. I read the text. I think it was on it was either um, Sunday or Monday. I flipped over and read the text real quick, and, and I knew I was down to just these two verses. And as we're in, getting into the book of Second Thessalonians now, and at first glance, I, I really uh, I thought, oh, I got my Paul's praying there. And I, didn't think much of it. I didn't think it would take that much. And I was wrong. Um, when I got into it, it became very challenging as to get to, okay, what is he saying here? Um, and uh, trying to draw that out. And I knew then, this is more than likely going to be a really important message. And it is. Um, as we come to the end of this chapter, Paul makes a very interesting prayer for them. A prayer that he made always. So when he thought of those in Thessalonica, and we've already talked about, keep in mind the church we're dealing with. How, when Paul is writing this letter, you know, he's, he's sitting now down in Corinth. He had just come from, you know, he was in Philippi, started a church, then he goes over to Thessalonica, starts there. The, 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 the ride about takes place. I mean, this is a church that is enduring suffering, that's enduring persecution. Um, this is the second letter that he's sending to them. They're not quite back-to-back, but they're just a few months, few months apart when these two letters go back to that church. And he knows what they're enduring. We just finished the first ten verses with him praising them for the endurance and, and, and all this long-suffering. They're staying faithful and all this persecution, the trials that they're facing. And then he concludes it, though, with what it is that he always prays for them. So you know this is important. And I really could look at this just about the prayer itself, or what about this prayer, and preach on that. But that's not the primary focus of the text, but I am going to touch on that right now. So to start that off, I want to, I want to ask this right now. I want you to be honest before yourself. Let's say the Lord comes to you right now. And bear with me with this. I need to go somewhere with this. And he says to you, listen, you can ask me right now three prayers, three petitions. And I will grant them immediately. Immediately. You get three. All right? Why don't you think about that for a second and then hold on to them. I'm going to come back to it. All right? I want you to think, what, what would those three be? If right now I said, whatever, doesn't matter what it is, you ask him, I'm doing it. Okay? So think about it. Think what they would be. Get those thoughts in your head, those three things in your mind. Hold them there. I'll come back to them. Now, as far as Paul's prayer, for what he prayed for this church in Thessalonica, with all the suffering, what they were enduring, at they're staying so faithful, he was so pleased with this church. And as we read, though, what he always prays for them, even though he just dealt with praising them for, uh, uh, um, for their patience and faith and all the persecution and tribulation that they endure in verse 4, and, and, and he goes on, when he prays for them, he doesn't bring any of that up. As you read it, he doesn't pray for the return of their jobs, of those who lost them. He doesn't pray for their financial independence, their financial needs. He doesn't pray for job promotion. He doesn't pray for any of the physical needs that were present. There is nothing material in his prayer for them. He doesn't even pray for their suffering to stop. This doesn't mean that Paul didn't want their suffering to stop. I think as we already read, he certainly did. He certainly did want all their needs met. There's no question about that. 
I have no doubt. But what it does show when Paul said, listen, when I'm praying for this is what I am always praying for you. This is what is most important. Above the suffering that you're going through, above the trials, above the persecution. What is above the needs you have. This is what is truly important. Our prayers tend to be filled with those very things, more material things. And it's not wrong, don't get me wrong. We'll pray about our physical needs, the needs of others. Suffering to stop, persecution to end. Nothing wrong about praying for these things. The Bible tells us bring our petitions to the Lord. That's not, that's not what I'm driving at. But what this does show when it comes to prayer of what is the most important things to pray about. Things that we need to be in our prayer life every day, and yet the truth is, as I think you'll agree by the time we're done, we rarely do. You see, as we're going to see here, Paul's prayer for them dealt with their, their walk and their works for God and, and how they might truly glorify Christ. Sometimes we can get so caught up in our own needs and our own suffering and things that are going on in our own life that we actually miss what God is doing. And we miss what it's all about. We get so consumed. Paul didn't want that to happen to them. And he says, now, I know that's taking place, but he says, now listen to me, this is what I always pray for you. Again, when those things take place, he knows they can become consuming. But the truth is, life is not about surviving. Life is not about being a victim. Life is not about the pursuit of happiness. Life is about God. He didn't want them to forget that. So now, let's get back to the three things I had you think of. Examine them. How many of those three things that came to your mind actually dealt with your actual ability to glorify Christ? That actually dealt with how you walk before God. What Paul is showing us, and again, like I said, I, could, I almost went that direction, but I knew it wasn't the primary focus of the text, so I knew I was just going to bring it up. But as you see Paul praying for them, it is showing us something that needs part of our prayer life that is so important. It shows us a priority that should be in our prayer life. Those three things that you thought in can reveal what is most important to you. So it, it sort of puts in, in, in focus of how important your actual ability in a real way, not some charismatic nonsense way, not by throwing your hands up and shouting to the Lord, but how on an everyday practical basis you can in truth glorify Christ with your life. Yet that's what Paul's prayer focused on. Think about this in relation to Solomon. Solomon came to my mind when I was going through this. Because the Lord did come to him and say, whatever you want. And don't you love his answer? You know what it was? He asked for something that would allow him to fulfill God's purpose in his life. That's what he wanted. Remember, the Lord restored. You didn't ask. You didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for honor. He wanted to do whatever God wanted him to do to the best of his ability. That's what was most important. 
And it, God was pleased and honored by that. So when Paul prays here for this church, as we're going to see, he prays for things in relation to their walk and their work for God in a way that would be able to bring true glory and honor unto Christ. He knew this is what it's all about. For the Christian, the moment you got saved, the moment, the moment you were redeemed by the blood of Christ, you were no longer your own. We became slaves and servants to Christ. And, and we say that, but do you understand how great that actually is? So in that regard, I think we can learn much from Paul's prayer. But we need to dive in the specifics of it that support what I'm telling you. We see three things that Paul prays for the church at Thessalonica. You can really can't even see a pastor's heart for his people in this prayer. The other needs that the church has, which are great, and I have no doubt there are times that Paul would bring those before the Lord and ask God's help. I have no, no question about it. But what we see here is they really don't compare to what he is dealing with in these aspects. These three things he's praying for them. This prayer is about their ability one day when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because let's face it, that, that's, that is the end goal, is that right there. The end goal of everything you're doing in life. The end goal of, 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 of how you raise your children, of how you deal with your spouse, of how you are at work. The end goal is to hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so within these simple two verses, we're only covering two verses tonight, two. Yet within these two verses is exactly how we're going to accomplish that. I put it in two points tonight is how I do this. I wanted to see what Paul wanted them to achieve and then what he wanted them to aim at. Basically, we're dealing with, uh, um, by achieve, things he wanted them to accomplish. By aim, I needed another A there. The motive. The purpose behind it. So let's first, what he wanted them to achieve in verse number 11. He says this. Wherefore, also, we pray always for you. Now, here it is. That our God would count you worthy of his calling, number one. Number two, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. And number three, and the work of faith with power. Three things here are listed. Three things that he always prayed for, with the motive being in verse 12 about glorifying Christ. This is what's going to lead to it. So that's how he prayed for them. These are things we could set as life goals, all three of these things. Because if you accomplish these things, you're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Worthiness, as we're going to see, deals with our character in life. Fulfilling good pleasure deals with our pursuits in life. Work deals with the results in our life as a result of, of us serving God. So let me dive into, into these three. 
So one thing he wanted him to achieve was to be worthy. That God would count them worthy of their calling. And again, as I've already mentioned, this deals with our character. This deals with who we really are. Now, before God, understand this, we have a, we have a positional worthiness before God. You don't deserve it. It's, it's, it's not something you work to obtain. But the very moment that God saved you, there's a positional worthiness where he made you worthy. Not because of anything you did, purely out of his grace, that took place. That's not what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing much more with a practical worthiness in your life. And how you're living. So Paul is praying that how they walked and how they lived on this earth. Because he just dealt with, remember what he dealt with. They're dealing with suffering. He lets them know judgment is coming, but he focused on the return of Christ. We talked about this last week. A lot of people, they don't see judgment executed speedily. They have problems with it, everything that happens. But the truth is, as Paul told them, I don't know when your suffering's stopping. I don't know what's going to... I know one day that God will take vengeance. And he puts that in context of judgment day, when Christ returns. It might take till then. But he says, in the meantime, until that day, you are to walk worthy of your calling. In spite of everything that's going on. That's what you're to do. He doesn't want them to be a reproach to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want them to hurt the cause of Christ by how they live. They have a great calling. Their position that they've been made in Christ is incredible. And he's saying, walk worthy of it. That people would walk in a way that is consistent with the position God gave them. And he's asking God to allow that to happen in their life. I read a good analogy of this. Let me quote it. It said, a rough and tumble peasant may not be worthy of a position in the king's court. But the king, by gracious decree, he can be plucked from his life of poverty and violence and placed in the king's court. Has he earned that position? No. But he can live his life in an honorable way, a way that is consistent with the honor of his position. Does that somehow make him worthy in the sense of earning and deserving his position? No. But he can become worthy in the actions for the position he's been placed. In other words, it's saying the king can choose that, that, that the one who doesn't deserve it. That's us placing him in this important position. But know what the king's going to expect? That he would live in a way that would honor the position that he's been given. So let me ask you this question. Are you living a life worthy of your calling? Does it fit with who you are? Now, you can think, the secular world recognizes this, of course. You can think of those who have been placed in some type of important position, a, a higher-up position, and, and if they do something to disgrace it, usually they're removed. You're held to a higher accountability. We are called into God's kingdom 
as we see in verse 5 of chapter 1. We are the king's sons. We are called to represent him. We are called to be salt and light. Paul is admonishing this church to walk worthy of what God has made them. He's praying, God, please allow that to happen in their life with the the greatness and the importance of the position that you have placed them in. This young church that is just getting started, Lord, allow them to walk in such a way that you deem it worthy of the position you have given them. Paul put it another way. Look over in Philippians chapter 1. He told the church at Philippi, this is sort of another way to word this a little bit. Only let, verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Did you get that? Only let your conversation, how you live, that's what conversation means there. Be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Walk worthy of your calling. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, if I'm present or not. Know what he's dealing with there? Character. That what's driving and motivating you isn't the presence of someone. It's teenager doing right now because mom and dad are in the room. It's because you claim to know Christ and so act like it, live like it. There should be a higher motivation, a higher reason of that love of Christ constraining us. That we would walk worthy of the calling that has been given to us. Look over in Ephesians chapter 4. The first couple of verses, I'll read them quickly. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. There's several, I'm just going to go to one. This is in Colossians, several places Paul deals with this. Here he gets more in how we do this, though. Look at this. With all lowliness and meekness. With long-suffering. Boy, with independent fundamental Baptists, they really could have used that in the last couple decades. That how we walk worthy of God is in lowliness and meekness. With long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And it continues from there. You can see here what a worthy life looks like. Let me quote from one commentator, pastor here. He said this. He said, what is a worthy life? It is a life which pleases the Lord in all aspects. It is a life which bears fruit in every good work, increases in knowledge, strengthened with power, a life which is thankful. Now, this is a list just from Scripture, tying it in with a walk that is worthy. It is a walk... In humility, a walk in purity, a walk in contentment, a walk by faith, a walk in righteousness, a walk in unity, a walk in gentleness, a walk in strength, a walk in patience, a walk in love, a walk in joy, a walk in thankfulness, a walk in light, a walk in knowledge, a walk in wisdom, a walk in truth, a walk in uh, 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 fruitfulness. As it tells us in First John, we are to walk as Christ walked. And, and by the way, remember the key to all this in truth. You know, sometimes the power to be able to do these things, it's like you have to focus on each one of those. That's not what you do. It isn't. You focus on being surrendered and genuine before God. 
And as we see these things, many of these things are simply the fruit of the Spirit, what He will produce in your life as you yield to Him. So he, He's praying for them that in how you live, basically that you'd be genuine and true, that it'd be worthy of the calling and position you had, that you wouldn't bring a reproach on the name of Christ, that you'd walk worthy. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a difference when you realize, I am the king's child. Do you understand that's a reality? It's, it's, not, it's not a little kid fairy tale book. You are the king's child. Not just any king. We're not talking about the king of Jamaica. I don't think they have a king, but I'll throw that out there. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about a tribal king. We're not talking about the king of England or anywhere else. We're talking about the king of kings. The creator of the universe. In the position that he has placed you. See your responsibility with it because it does. It brings, remember I gave the story out like well, I would do this on purpose when I would go, go places I was in the military. When I get deployed or whatever. I would always tell immediately that I was a Christian. It was also for my own benefit. Because I did not want to drag Christ's name through the mud. I wanted it out there immediately. Just in case. Anything, nope, I want them to know right away that that's who I am. <clears throat> Paul was praying for them. Lord, please. Lord, help them to be worthy of their calling. Then he goes on from their character and how they lived. He brings up a really important thing. And this is one of the things that really just had to dig into and, and think on was this portion here. <clears throat> he said, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. At first glance, you might not think that that's too difficult, but it is. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. So he's praying here, secondly, that they would fulfill good pleasure of his goodness. As you're going to see, this deals with really what we're pursuing. Let me explain. First off, going after the wrong pleasure can destroy your life. It can Going after something that's not right, even, not necessarily something that's sinful. You can go after something because you can't see it in Scripture that it's necessarily sinful, black and white. But nonetheless, it's not what God would have for you. And you go after that. And all of a sudden, know what that does immediately? It removes you from the ability for you to glorify Christ with your life. You might not think that's a big deal with how those words are thrown around today. But I am telling you, that's what it's all about. To be able to actually stand before the Lord, the creator of the universe, the one who died for you, who literally took your judgment by his grace, was the one who picked you up, placed you in his kingdom, and you will stand before him one day. And to be able to hear him say in response to how you lived, well done, my good and faithful servant. How many people, how many Christians get so caught up in seeking pleasure and ease and never live a life to glorify God? 
Paul's basically praying here they would accomplish what they desire. And I'll explain that. Provided what they desire is good by how God defines good. Based on what God knows is good and good for them. He says, Lord, that's what they need to fulfill. That. What you define as good. We can get that so out of whack, can't we? And the devil comes along just like he did in the garden. He tries to get you to see things as good, but before God, they're not. That was an apple. Fruit. I know it wasn't that. You don't have to tell me afterwards. You don't tell it wasn't an apple. That's fine. We need more people here. I mean, I got like one laugh out of that. That's going to be up all night now because of that, because nobody laughs at my jokes. What Paul wants is this, their desire's right. And he's praying, Lord, if their desire isn't right, don't honor it. It's his good pleasure. What he defines as good. What God defines as good and right. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Praise the Lord, bless them, and let them fulfill that right desire as they follow you and honor you. You know, we can think of, I mean, there's different verses that come to mind. Was it Psalm, I don't, I don't have it written down. Was it Psalm 37? It's um, the verse I'm thinking of. Then with the desires over thy heart. Yeah, well, yeah, delight thyself and Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. And I've taught on that here before, at least I think I have. I, several places I have, I assume here. But that's also dealing with having the right desires. God giving you the right desires. I think that's even important that we pray that, Lord, please put the right desires in my heart. Because he is the one that knows what is truly good. It's based on his goodness and his definition of it. And he wants, them to fulfill, he wants the church of Thessalonica to fulfill that. that because I, we go after pleasure. We go after what we think is good. It's in us. It's, it's, it's what we do. And he's saying, Lord, when it comes to this, those things that they're going to pursue, what they see as good, Lord, may, they, may it be what you deem as good. Be praying, Lord, protect me from evil fleshly desires. I mean, let's not think, what is it in the book of James where they're praying to consume things upon their own lust? What they thought was good, they were really wrong. They were really off base. Pray, I think a part of the prayer along this line, pray for God to help your desire always to be about God. A desire for His Word. Protection from evil fleshly desires. Again, we, can, we, we don't have time. We could trail this out. We, I, I could actually stop there do another sermon on the importance of this aspect because of the importance your mind's going to play in what you deem is good. And how you'll go after that. I think I'm speaking in tongues now. 
Well, you can think of those who have fallen in a, a measure of gross sin and listen to the justifications. You know what they had to do? They somehow had to convince themselves that it's right and good. We need protection from that. Lord, only what your goodness is. Don't let my wicked heart mess that up. Paul didn't want that for him. Help my desires to be right. We can tie it into Matthew 6.33. That our life will be about that. Seeking God's kingdom. Pray what we pursue is right. Thirdly, I won't spend a lot of time here, but it certainly is important. Not because it's of less importance. So they need to have the character. They need to walk worthy of His calling. And praying that fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. That the pleasure that they're seeking is what God defines and knows is good for them. That's what's important. And then, dealing with their work and the work of faith with power. This is a church that's trying to remember how important this city is. We, we dealt with that when we, when we started First Thessalonians. This is the capital. This is important. This is a, the trade routes. Everything that's coming through there. Uh, all the different groups and nationalities coming in. I mean, Paul knew the importance of a church in Thessalonica. And so he knew. He, knew when he, he got the reports back and they were so good. He was so excited for them. They're working. But he knew the key to the work of God is God's power. It's God's blessing on it and God's hand on it. Because all of a sudden, what do we do when we don't have that? We substitute things for God's power. And, of course, we claim it's God's power. We like to give him all the honor and glory for it. But it's simply our carnal efforts and methods. And Paul said, no, I know it's going to be right. It needs to have God's power on it. That as you do the work of faith, that God has his power on it for you. That is when you truly do begin to see lives changed. He's not here tonight. I don't think he'll mind me uh, bringing this up right now at all. But Jared Taylor is here. We got saved now, what, three or four months ago? And uh, we've been texting, uh, I think the last two days, or emailing both, texting and emailing the last two days. Just seeing what God's doing in his life from where he was. Leaving prison. Heard us on the radio. I still remember, I still remember when he got saved. It was after service. We're downstairs for the lunch. Going through the gospel. And I just got finished with it. And right there, room was packed. Every, eating and everything like that. It's packed. He drops down to his knee right there. Boom. Just, I didn't tell him to do that. But I just finished the gospel as thoroughly as I could with him. And he said he needed it. Bam. Dropped right down, put his faith in Christ. And they see somebody going from such bondage, life destroyed, to where he is now. To actually see that begin taking place, it needs God's hand on it. There ain't one of us that can do that. Not one of us. We have these different ministries. From Understand, if you're a Sunday school teacher or a master's club, or we want God's blessing and his power on it. We don't want it of your efforts and our efforts. 
We simply want to be yielded to God to have His blessing and His power because that's when it's going to be honored. So he's praying that the works of faith would have God's power, God's touch on it, God's blessing. And then let me get to point number two and I'll be done. This one's even longer. Just It'll be quick. Verse number 12. So he says, here's what I'm always praying for you. In light of what they're going through. And he just got done talking about it in the first ten verses. Verse 12. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I'm, I'm just going to touch on this. I did enjoy that. I always love verses that stress the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ because it gets attacked often. Um, here is a verse that is packed with it. Uh, um, one, it equates uh, um, right here at the end of the verse, in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's either saying that Jesus directly is God, or it is equating the both, of course, which makes him God in the verse. But also the first part of the verse, which is very interesting, I believe is also a statement of his deity, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase, you can look it up and you go, I'm not going to trace it right now. But if you were to do the phrase right now, if you have e sort of computer, it would be a whole lot quicker for you. Name The name of the Lord. That's basically, that phrase is the name of God itself. You'll see it throughout the New Testament. And so used in this way, it's also an expression of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail. What he drives at in verse 12 is this. The aim for this prayer, or the purpose, or the motive. This is why he wanted him to walk worthy. This is why he wanted him to pursue, as God saw what is good, to fulfill that. This is why he wanted their works to have God's power on it. The end goal was this. That the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. That's what it's all about. It, it wasn't about some prideful, fleshly thing with the Apostle Paul that his name would be glorified and he'd be the Apostle, Apostle, and running around signing Bibles everywhere. It was simply this. He prayed this, that the Lord might be glorified. So, if that's true, which it is, how can our life actually glorify God? You walk worthy of the calling you have. Those things you desire, the pleasures, make sure it's something based on God's goodness and definition of good, not yours. That he prays for them to fulfill. And then that our work would have God's touch and God's power on it. All so we can glorify Christ. That's what it comes down to. That's what it's all about. He knew these three things were key if they're going to accomplish that. I mean, Paul himself lived that. Go back to a verse that I love. You don't have to turn there. I'm there already. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul said this, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul was praying for this for them, but he lived it. Paul, remember, Paul's sitting in the rotten Roman prison when he wrote uh, the, the book of Philippi. Uh, the, from wrote to the church of Philippi, the book of Philippians. He's sitting in prison with a human being chained to him in a muddy hole in the ground that was disgusting and nasty, writing about joy and rejoicing in a small epistle about 17 times. And, and the church, and the reason the letter came about, remember, they, they sent to check on him. They are worried about him. So they sent, uh, they sent uh, um, who was it, Epaphroditus to check on him. And, and Paul says, I'm great. Don't have to worry about me. 
And, he, and, and this was the key to what he said. Where he said, according to my, he said, this is what's on my mind. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, this is what I live for. That in nothing else shall be ashamed, walk worthy. But that with a whole boldness, as always. And this was a man who pursued nothing but Christ. Verse, that's verse 21. So now also. This is what Paul lived for. Christ shall be magnified in my body. He didn't care how it was. Whether it be by life or by death. That's what it's all about. Contextually, he's given this to a church that is struggling. Because of persecutions and suffering. And he says, what I'm praying for you always though, always, is that you're in a place that you can magnify God. Don't forget what it's about. It's all about him. With heads bowed and eyes closed.